Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. In 2023, more than 6 million animals were taken to shelters and rescues in the country. That's according to a recent report from Shelter Animals Count, a nonprofit that tracks unhoused animals. And believe it or not, those numbers are lower than they were pre-pandemic. Owner surrenders for dogs decreased by 4%. The stray intakes increased 5% from 2022 to 2023. This past summer, Connecticut news outlets reported local animal shelters were bursting at the seams and unable to keep up with calls from people trying to surrender pets. This hour, we'll be checking back in with some of those pet shelters. How is the so-called pandemic boomerang of pet returns affecting them now? And later this hour, we'll be switching gears to hear from farm animal and wildlife rescues in Connecticut. So whether you've got questions about your pandemic puppy or a stray opossum you think that might need some help, give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And joining us first is Laura Bourbon. She's the director for the Dan Cosgrove Animal Shelter, which is a municipal shelter serving Branford and North Branford. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Laura, you've been a director at the shelter for over a decade. Can you give us a start by telling us a little bit about the, the place and how many animals do you currently have? Yeah, so we've been in existence for um, 20 years. We actually were just um, thrilled enough to open up a brand new building. Um, we got in there last February. So we're still kind of getting used to our new building, but it's it's awesome. Um, right now, we actually two weeks ago had uh, about 10 adoptions of dogs, which had been with us for um, six 
to nine months, those dogs were just not moving. And we did a whole bunch of um, advertising. And luckily, people came out after they saw all the ads and um, adopted those dogs. So we actually have done really well in the last couple of weeks. Um, But I'd say right now, we probably have close to about 70 cats, still about um, maybe eight dogs and probably about 15 to 20 critters. And so do you have, you have cats and dogs. What other animals do you have? Uh, guinea pigs, hamsters, and bunnies right now at this point. And are, are, you saying, are you seeing the same increase with those critters as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. Last year, um, I noted that we had, in 2023, we had taken in, I want to say, over 100 critters where the year before, we were only at like 50. So we we doubled the amount of critters we saw come through the building. And can you talk about also, you know, how, how have things changed in recent years in terms of capacity issues and, and calls to surrender pets? Um, because we know from a WTNH report back in July, you were fielding up, upwards to about 50 calls a day. And I'm assuming that's a lot. So can you talk about when that picked up and, and how is it going now? Yeah, after um, people really started going back to work after the pandemic, um, and they started going on vacation again, and kids went back to school and all of that, we definitely saw an uptick in just phone calls and people reaching out, whether via email or social media, um, to surrender their pets, and also just questions. They were having training issues, whether it was potty training or the animals were chewing things. Um, So we were really trying to guide them. But I think that after people have tried those options and still aren't seeing results, they get frustrated and um, they just want to relinquish the animals. And unfortunately, you know, as everybody's getting full, there's not space. And so that's when we're seeing the abandonments happen. And are you, is that something that you're still seeing today? Has it has it leveled off a little bit? Um, yeah, we are seeing it still quite a bit today. Um, I would say that, you know, for us, we're definitely seeing it start to level off a little bit. But I just don't think we're at the end of it yet. I think that we're going to continue to see these things go on for a while. And, um, you know, as we sort of process this, you know, adoption rates, I think, have improved in some way. What about surrender requests? You know, are, how many phone calls are you are you fielding roughly Uh, per day or per week when it comes to people wanting to surrender their pets? Well, because we have kind of multi-sources available for people, whether it's social media, email, and phone calls, we're still seeing about Mm -hmm. the same amount. It's it's roughly between 25 and 50 a day. Um, It just depends on the day. The weekends um, are busier with people coming in, like physically coming into the building to ask questions about how they give up their animals and things like that. Um, But the weekdays are definitely busy. People are calling while they're at work or on their lunch break or whatever and just saying, you know, I no longer can keep my animal. I'm moving or, you know, I'm having a baby or whatever else is going on. I know earlier you listed a couple of reasons why why people want to surrender a pet. You know, what are some other reasons that you're hearing and are some more common than others? So I would say the biggest reasons we hear are financial issues, um, whether the animal has allergies and they just can't get it under control and they've already spent a few hundred dollars and they just can't Mm -hmm. put any more into the animal. Um, The typical other reasons we hear is they're moving um, and they can't take the animal where they're going or that things like they're having a baby, they have a new boyfriend or girlfriend who doesn't want the animal, Um, Mm -hmm. typical stuff like that. And when... 
well, of course, this is not a new situation for you, unfortunately. But you know, how do you talk people through this? Because I, I imagine a lot of times, it's, it, perhaps it's their first experience. Um, maybe they don't want to surrender, but they they think they really have to. You know, can you walk us through what those conversations look like? Yeah, we we actually set up an entire resources page on our website because um, so many people were calling um, with a variety of issues that they were having. And it depends on on what the issue is for them. So say they uh, lost their job and right now they just can't afford to feed their animals. So we offer a pet food pantry where we'll certainly help give them food until they're back on their feet so they can keep their animal in their home. But just say they're they're in Hartford, obviously coming to us is pretty difficult since we're in Brantford. So the resource list we have online sort of guides them on places where they can go. Um, and we always recommend that they call the animal shelter in their nearest area because they'll usually know if they don't have a pet food pantry themselves who will offer one. Um, and then things on our resource page include um like vet resources. So if you need a low cost spay or neuter, because sometimes it's, it's something that can be fixed. I mean, not, not expensively. So we have people who call that will say their cat is spraying and we'll ask if the cat's neutered and they'll say no. And we'll say, usually that will help if you can get your cat neutered. So we guide them to that page to go see where low cost spay and neuter options would be for them. Um, obviously if they're moving, we, we actually on our page have some resources where they can look to see other options as far as where they could go to live that allow animals. Um, because some people call us and they're just hysterical that they have to give up their animal because they're moving to a place that doesn't allow pets, say. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to guide them that way as well. It just depends really what some of the issues are. And, and unfortunately, some things we can't help with. We, we get a lot of phone calls from people who will say things like, um, you know, just say they're in East Haddam and they found that their dog ate a sock and their dog's blocked and the surgery is going to be $7,000. We, we do try to, once again, offer them some resources um, of, you know, what they could do or where they could go. But it's difficult because not everybody right now has savings of $7,000, right. you know, to put in for a surgery. So it's just really trying to guide them as much as we can. And are, are there situations where surrendering a pet is actually helpful for that pet? You know, like it's, it's not a bad thing. There might be some misconceptions around, around pet surrendering. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I absolutely think. I mean, and we could tell many times when people are surrendering their pet that it's like a huge relief for them. It's just Mm -hmm. a huge burden. And I think that when they really no longer, um, it's unfortunate to say, but care about the pet, um, you know, it's just become a burden in their lifestyle and it's not what they were expecting. It's better to have the pet go into a home where it's going to be cherished and loved as part of the family um, than to have that animal kind of thrown to the side and not really wanted. So as we're adopting at animals, we're having a lot of conversations with people um, about everything from what vet costs are to what it means to bring an animal into your home um, and and the things that can go kind of haywire with having a new animal in the home, just so that they're processing all of it before they take the animal home. And I, especially based on based on what you're sharing with us, I imagine you're getting animals all across the ages, across backgrounds and breeds. So can you talk about obviously case by case basis for the pet? But what is it like for the pets that are surrendered? You know, do they usually adjust well? Is there a typical experience or you know, how has that been like for you? So under normal circumstances, um, animals that come in, especially that are, say, a year or older, um, 
do take quite a bit of time to adjust. As you can imagine, if if you yourself lost your home, your family, everybody you know, and were placed in a weird environment with all different foods and smells and people you had no idea who they were, you too would probably be anxious. Um, and we see the dogs come in frightened um, and anxious and the cats as well. So um, lucky for us in this new building, we've built kind of quiet areas where the animals can sort of decompress for a little while until we put them in the more public areas. Um, but it's still not home. So it's definitely a stressful time for them. And we do our best to make sure we're giving them consistency and, and time and love and, and space and whatever they need in order to sort of acclimate to the new environment they're in. But people um, that have to give them up, like I said, many times are relieved because it, it becomes a burden for them. But we really try to talk to those people about the fact that, you know, we understand they're going through a difficult time and they have to give up the animal that, but they also too have to understand that this is going to be a difficult time for this animal coming into an unknown environment. And that, you know, the next time they're getting an animal, if they ever do again, they really have to think about, you know, an 18 year commitment and what that looks like. Because unfortunately, we never know if these people are going to go back out and in in six months, go get another animal. And so we try to give them some some guidance, even when they're owner releasing the animals to us. And, you know, we talked a little bit about about commitment and how this is long term. And you mentioning just now, too, like a lot of pets, you have to dedicate at least 18 years um, to have them. And so I wonder if, if some cases, you know, you're going into this not realizing how complicated the process can be. And especially, you know, you, you can't control your dog most of the times. He's going to eat a sock and then you're, you're, you know, you're left with that situation. So so when something like that happens, and I can't imagine that to be your first time hearing that story but like what recommendations would you would you make for pet owners around injury pet insurance especially with what you just described you know a dog ingesting a sock you know it doesn't happen every day but it does happen right yeah i mean we definitely talk to people we do a lot of what we call adoption counseling so we talk to people about the fact that they have to think about a few different things. Um, the first thing is they want to make sure that they are looking at the financial responsibility that comes with having a pet. Um, so whether it's a dog, cat or bunny, a lot of times we'll hear from people and they'll say, well, I was just going to get a bunny because it's easier and I never have to take it to the vet. And we're like, well, that's not true. You actually you don't know what could happen. Um, you know, we recommend that if at all possible, we you know, the bunnies we get spayed or neutered and, and all of those types of things. And so you have to be planning on the fact that there's a financial commitment. So pet insurance is one really good option. Um, just savings, almost like you would for any other family member, just putting money aside side, knowing that things could come up um, and looking at other options too, like care credit. There, there's so many different things out there and there's, there's um, fundraising, you know, platforms now too, that people can use, you know, should they find themselves to be in a difficult position, like, like a dog swallowing a sock, but there's just so many things that can happen that are unknown that, you know, we're not planning for. So we really do try to make sure that people are really processing that and, and the 18 year commitment. I can tell you myself right now, I have a dog who's 14 who hasn't slept um, through the night in almost a year. And so she's getting three to four hours of sleep a night. And so am I. <laughs> so, you know, right. it's, you're going to go through a lot of uncomfortable things, you know, with having animals. And, and it's just like having kids or any other family member that you live with. You, you adjust the best you can. 
Well, I'm already learning so much just on this short conversation. I hope our listeners are as well. You've been listening to Laura Bourbon with Dan Cosgrove Animal Shelter in Brantford. And we will be continuing this conversation after a quick break. So let us know if you have any questions about adopting a new pet or for our farm animal and wildlife experts joining us late in the hour. Let us know if you have any questions from them. Ferncroft Wildlife Rescue will be joining us, which is a home for many happy opossums and other critters. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us to discuss some of the pressures facing local animal shelters and how you can help is Laura Bourbon. She's a director for the Dan Cosgrove Animal Shelter, which is a municipal shelter serving Branford and North Branford. And for our listeners, let us know if you have any questions for Laura. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Laura, I want to start this segment by playing a clip from Dr. Michelle Farella. She's the co-chair of Wellness Committee of the Connecticut Veterinary Medical Association, and she spoke with our very own Jenny Ahrens last year. A lot of the bottleneck comes from not having enough personnel. There's not enough veterinarians to... Uh, meet the demands and there's not enough support staff. I think where we are right now is the support staff shortage is hurting us the most. You know, veterinarians can prescribe, diagnose, um, do surgery, but we need the support staff, the veterinary technicians and otherwise to keep us running and keep us efficient so we can continue to treat as many patients as possible. Historically, wages for veterinary technicians has been way too low. You know, a lot of a lot of veterinary technicians realize they can make just as much money working at a Starbucks as what they're doing in practice. So, Laura, earlier we had talked about shelters being over capacity because there are so many people bringing in, in their pets and and it sounds like a lot of shelters and, and vets, they're sort of experiencing very similar pressures and with other industries as well. You know, it's not the first time we're hearing a, an area being short staffed. You know, can you describe this bottleneck as you see it from your perspective at your shelter? Yeah, I actually agree with everything she just said. Um, (laughs) It's the same in animal shelters. So typically municipal and um, even private animal shelters, the staff are not paid to the level that they should be, as well as there's never seeming to be enough staff. Um, You know, and, and part of that is because they recognize the same thing. They can leave our industry and go to another industry and, and make quite a bit more money. 
And people don't come into our industry. I mean, I don't think typically they come into our industry thinking they're going to be multimillionaires, sure. but they they do need to make a living. And so um, that's difficult. It's difficult for shelters all across the board that I talk to. Um, they have trouble keeping staff because they're just not paid to the level that they, they would want to be. Um, and then Obviously, when you don't have enough staff, it's everybody else is is holding the burden for caring for all the animals and, and trying to do it at a level where everybody is comfortable. And so it, it's a difficult thing that we're all going through in this industry. And I can tell you that from our perspective, there's definitely not enough vets that mm-hmm. are doing the, um, the, the spays and neuters and just the overall caretaking. Um, and I'm also seeing that we're struggling because we do take on wildlife Um where if an animal is is hurt, injured, and needs help, especially obviously the juveniles, we we had vets in the past that would see these animals, and now we don't see any vets around locally that are seeing you know hurt or injured wildlife um, juveniles. So it's it's a difficult process to be in when your whole world is about caring for animals. Right, and and I think like most areas, it's always a lot more complicated than you think, and and animals come from all places. And and Laura, uh, I know we were scheduled to hear from Katie Holman this morning, who's a volunteer at Halfway Home Animal Shelter in North Haven. You know, she shared recently that they took in 22 cats that were abandoned. And I want to just read a quick report here um, that there have been several reported animal cruelty incidences here in Connecticut over the last year, including the recent arrest of a of a 78-year-old woman charged with 55 counts of animal cruelty and 43 dogs seized. And a CBS investigative team in neighboring uh, Massachusetts found that animal cruelty cases skyrocketed in 2023. And uh, we know Connecticut Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals actually closed last May because of financial constraints. So we're peeling so many layers here, Laura. But are you are you seeing this as well? You know, is this part of a contribution to the bottleneck issue that we've been talking about? Yeah, I absolutely think it is, and I think that you know the majority of what we're seeing after talking to people who are um, especially hoarding animals is that, you know, they were initially trying to do the right thing, um, trying to help these animals get off the street that were being abandoned and then um, didn't have the financial resources to get all these animals vetted. And then they're procreating and having more animals in their home and then become ashamed or afraid to reach out for help. And so we're definitely hearing a lot more hoarding cases um, going on throughout the state. As far as the cruelty, I think that after um, COVID went on, I felt like people were definitely more um, maybe frustrated or um, just having a difficult time. Um, And I guess it's because there was like a lack of being able to socialize. And so, you know, we're definitely seeing from different people things go on that we we certainly didn't expect. So so cruelty situations happening that, you know, within our communities that we we definitely wouldn't have thought we would see from them. Um, so and I'm talking to other animal control officers that are seeing the same thing. So we, we think that there's a lot of stress that people are carrying, I guess, from COVID and it's it's trickling over into their regular daily life. And unfortunately, animals tend to get the brunt of it because they can't speak. 
And so we we have a listener who called in to say that they volunteered at a pet shelter in Granby, and they said the shelter was not accepting local surrenders. And what I found was they were importing animals from other places and not accepting in-state surrenders. And I also, on that note, want to play another quick clip from Dr. Farella, who we heard earlier about the capacity issues that may be unique to Connecticut. In Connecticut, I would say our uh, we're, we're at capacity. Like we're, we are really behind on a lot of things. And even though we're at capacity, we're still bringing in animals on a weekly basis from, you know, across the country. And there's different camps on that and there's pros and cons to that, but it is really hard to just make that math work out in my mind. There's a lot of animals in the state already that need a lot of care and need a lot of help. So, Laura, with with our listener comment about shelters not accepting local surrenders and also um, our producer, Kitty Pelico, also goes searching for puppies on PetFinder and, and discover that there are a lot of options from out of state there as well. So is it your sense that this adds to the capacity issue? You know, does this play a big role in that? Yeah, I mean, I personally do feel that, you know, shelters within our state, municipal um, or otherwise, should be accepting surrenders, Um, especially, you know, if you're a shelter in a certain town and your residents need to be surrendering those animals, I I feel very strongly that you should be accepting them because I believe it becomes a public safety risk if you're telling those people we don't accept owners, surrenders, we'll only accept roaming animals. So that means if that person can't bring that animal to you and provide you with all the information, but they go out and they dump it in the road that I may be driving on that road and then have to avoid hitting that animal and and could myself crash because I don't want to, you know, run over an animal. It just, there, there's a lot of things that I, I don't understand why it happens within our state, but, um, I do think that, you know, with everything going on and all of the owner surrender calls coming into all of our different facilities, that we need to be responsible about importing other animals at this point. Um, I think it's just there are so many right here right now that need our help that we we have to be focusing on that and getting that under control. Um, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with helping other areas when they desperately need help as well. It's just that at this point right now, I feel like we are we are struggling in a lot of ways and that we need to focus on how we get that under control. And really quickly here, you know, we talk about adoption, but what about fostering? You know, is that something that you'd encourage people to do? Because if I think research has shown that when animals get fostered, they actually have a higher chance of getting adopted. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from a municipal standpoint, I know many shelters, um, you know, do not foster. There's just a whole bunch of reasons why, including liability issues and not having the staff to really man all those people who would be holding those animals outside of your facility. But I, I do think it's it's a great option. And I think it's a great option because people can obviously get to know the animal on their own time and um, in their own space, while not yet having the commitment to it, meaning like the financial commitment of providing food or veterinary care or whatever else. But I also think it gives the facility, whether it's an animal control or animal shelter, um, the benefit of learning about that animal and what they're like in a home. So even if it doesn't work out with that particular foster, they can then learn, you know, this dog is scared of lightning um, or this cat loves to be around other animals. So it just gives, you know, the benefit of understanding what the likes and dislikes are and maybe the best fit home for that animal. 
Well, just by your description, I hope that inspires more people to foster. Thank you so much, Laura Bourbon with Dan Cosgrove Animal Shelter in Branford. Laura, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And when we get back, we're hearing from opossum and wildlife experts in Woodstock and one farm animal rescue in Canterbury. Shout out to your favorite animal shelter or rescue or send us your critter questions. Call 888-720-9677. Struggling here a little bit, guys. 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're hearing from the people who are dedicated to protecting animals where we live. Now, we're shifting gears a bit from household pets to farm animals and wildlife. Do you have questions about the critters in your backyard? What's your favorite local shelter or rescue organization? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And now joining us is Pamela Lefferts, who's a licensed wildlife rehabilitator and founder of Ferncroft Wildlife Rescue in Woodstock. Thank you so much, Pam, for joining us today. Pam, are you there? Well, while we work on Pam, we're, I'm also going to welcome Marla Riley, who's a registered nurse and also president and founder of the Riley Farm Rescue in Canterbury. Marla, thanks for being here today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And so want to start with you, Marla, you know, talking about about your your rescue. Can you talk about the space that that you that you're in and also the animals that that you have? Sure. We have a 26 acre property. Um, We have just a little bit over 270 um, rescued animals Wow! from all types of species, from cows to reptiles. Um, one of my biggest goals when we got this property in 2019 was to make sure that we were able to build a small animal center, which we were able to do over COVID. And it basically houses all of our exotics and reptiles, um, so they have a better space than just your typical cages. Um, And then we have the goats and sheep, uh, horses, those kind of animals as well. Um, We are a sanctuary, so we don't adopt out. So everyone that comes to us stays with us um, for the duration of their lifetime. So we're pretty much at capacity um, just because of the volumes and the cost of everything going up and employee hours and the cost to run such a large organization. Um, But... (laughs) That's where we are as of today. Well, I'm a little sad. Can't adopt one of your critters, Marla, but I am happy to hear that they are living in a sanctuary. So that sounds like a good time for them. I'm going to take a quick moment here to welcome Pamela. Pamela, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Welcome back. Uh, We have Pamela, who is a licensed wildlife rehabilitator and also founder of Ferncroft Wildlife Rescue in Woodstock. So, Pamela, we'd love for you to to tell us a little bit about how Ferncroft got started and and what's your mission. So Ferncroft got started. My husband and I are retired teachers, 
And after a couple of years, I felt I needed to have a purpose. And Connecticut is one of the states, and, and probably not the only one, that's desperate for wildlife rehabbers. We just don't have enough of us. Mm-hmm. So we became rehabbers and quickly decided that this was our mission, um, is to help wildlife. You know, we uh, actually rehabbed several different species, but in the end chose opossums. But the other thing that we're doing that we're probably really focused on lately is educating the public Mm -hmm. on how to coexist peacefully with wildlife. And so we do a lot of public education programs. And you also have a federal designation allowing educational programming, which I think is really important to to mention. And, and listeners can find schedules of events around the state where they can meet some of these uh, spokes possums. Is that right, Pam? Yes. Tell us about these ambassador animals. So I really think it is important that people understand every state has different laws about wildlife, but in Connecticut, it is illegal to keep wildlife of any species, even as a rehabber, we cannot keep wildlife. So we have a federal license from the USDA uh, and approval from the state to have educational animals that are non-releasable. So these are animals that we couldn't release out into the woods because they usually it's an injury or a disability and they wouldn't be able to survive in the wild. Uh, one of the the uh, main points we make when we're doing public education programs is, is the famous quote, put the bunny back, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. and we try to teach kids that if you find a baby animal, you don't keep that animal. You find a rehabber if it's injured or you leave it and let it live uh, its natural life. That really is the goal of a rehabber. You know, we live by the three R's, rescue, rehab and release. Uh, so our goal is to release the animals. Rescue, rehab, and release. Write it down, everyone. That's your right. that's your homework for today. And and can you tell us about some of your spokes opossums? So we have <laughs> yes, we have uh, three of our own that we take out publicly. Two of them, people that follow us on Facebook, know them well because we do lots of little videos of them. We have a female Wendy, and we have a male. Sherman, uh, both of which are non-releasable. Wendy was hit by a car and Sherman was attacked by a dog and they both have neurological problems. And we're training a third one. He's young, um, Bob, and he won't be ready to go out for a couple of months. We also train uh, educational animals for Connecticut uh, wildlife sanctuaries. We've got uh, a couple in Roaring Brook, uh, Lutz Museum, and somebody's coming tomorrow from the Children's Museum in West Hartford to pick up um, an animal that is going to be their educational animal. Now, we spend a lot of time with these animals before saying, yes, they can go out in public. Not only do they have to be non-releasable, they have to have a certain temperament We could get a wild uh, opossum that can't be released, but also can't be handled. Uh, So they don't go out to be educational animals. We need to know that these animals are safe and that 
you know, children like to come up and look at them and pet them. And so we spend a lot of time with them to make sure that it's okay to bring them out publicly. And so, Pamela, I know you had a, a spoke opossum, Mango, who recently passed away and, you know, sending you our, our opossum thoughts and love. You know, they they don't have long lifespans. Is that correct? Yeah, that's very correct. And that's always a surprise to people. Opossums in the wild, if they make it two years, they've done well. Part of the problem is these are southern animals. Uh, they're up here in the north and they're not prepared for our weather. You know, their tails have no fur, their feet have no covering, their ears get frostbite. In captivity, we can oftentimes get three to four years, but they just have a very short lifespan. And people say, well, why? Well, for one thing, they're a prey animal. And so they weren't really put on earth to stay for a long time. Um, males tend to get uh, congestive heart failure. Um, we have had, I think, eight uh, opossum ambassadors now, and the longest one was Lavender, our first, and she lived about three and a half years. So we know that, you know, we don't have these animals for 10 or 15 years. It's a short lifespan. And uh, I want to ask both of you about s a certain misconceptions that people might have with your animals. But Marla, I want to I want to bring you back here real quick. Uh, we heard about Pam's inspiration for founding Fern Ferncroft, and you know we heard a little bit about your backstory earlier. But we'd love to ask, you know, what first inspired you to to want to to build your sanctuary in the first place? Um, basically, I had gotten some chicks like many people do for eggs, and I quickly realized they had their own personalities and then just started looking into helping animals. Um, I went vegetarian, and then I went vegan after going to a livestock animal auction and was pretty horrified by everything that I saw and knew that I needed to be vegan and to be able to help the animals um, that are looked at as products and food. Uh, so that is really the start of the uh, our mission statement is, you know, to promote the vegan lifestyle. Well, and I, I definitely see the word help as a theme here because you're also a registered nurse by day. So can you talk about, you know, how are you able to make all of that work and does that inform your work? It, it sounds like it could inform your work both ways. Yes, definitely. I mean, I have um, multiple jobs. I have four jobs, so I kind of mold them around the schedule of the sanctuary. Um, and I do have full staff at the sanctuary as well. We're fortunate enough to be able to afford that. So on days like today when I'm at work, I'm able to be at work while I have my sanctuary employees taking care of the animals. And Marla, Marla and Pamela, both of you share an ingenuity with social media. You know, Pam mentioned earlier that they're really active on social media. So, so Marla, I want to start with you. You know, can you talk about how important that is to to the public to have that kind of platform out there for the public to see? Sure, very important in today's day and age. I mean, we do ninety nine percent of our fundraising is on social media, so we would not exist without those platforms. Um, and just sharing the animal stories. I've had many people message me, you know, if I posted a video recently about one of our turkeys, Murphy, and a lot of people posted me or sent me messages saying, you know, how 
sad they were to see how we found Murphy um, in a box tied up, not able to stand. And that was making them really think about their, their choices of what they're eating. Well, I have to say, so uh, producer Katie and I started our morning by watching your your uh, goat cam, and it was the most peaceful <laughs> way of starting a day I have ever experienced. Uh, so thank you for that. And and Pam, you're also always giving updates after watching uh, through the overnight surveillance cameras, you know, when all of the possum activity is, is literally afoot. So can you talk about the importance of having social media as a part of your work? Social media is a big part of our work because we don't have staff. It's Bill and I, and we have volunteers, and we have wonderful volunteers. In fact, we have six members of our team that started as volunteers and are now rehabbers. Um, but social media, uh, you know, opossums, I think one of the reasons Bill and I chose that as an animal to focus on, they're sort of the underdog of wildlife, and people don't like them because of the way they look. But by the time they finish talking to me, they love them and think they <laughs> think they look cute. But social media is how we raise funds um, as well. And um, we're a 501. And it's really the donations of people that keep us running. Um, I think sometimes uh, the public has a preconceived idea of what an animal is like, and we're able to show videos. The night cameras are wonderful because, you know, uh, opossums are nocturnal, and so they're active at night. So we have cameras in all of our pens, and we can watch them at night. It's how we're assessing them as well to see when they're ready to go. Right. And thousands of people People now follow us and they look forward to looking at these um, animals at night, at coming to our programs. And so I feel like social media has been one of the most important things to keep us up and running. I, I kind of just had a, had a moment of, uh, you need to get a reality show going on, Pam. It's called Keeping Up with the Opossums. I bet <laughs> <laughs> that's going to, that will go. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of social, we've got Barbara who is calling in from New York. Barbara, you are on the line. Hi, good morning. Um, first, I have to say hello, Mrs. Lefferts. Um, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, I was your student way back in class of 1999. It's wonderful to hear that you're still educating uh, students today with these misunderstood creatures. Uh, and my question is that um, we actually have a pack of coyotes that has moved in nearby, and they are also, I think, misunderstood creatures. And I was wondering if you or anybody else this morning has any suggestions about living peacefully, coexisting with them, and kind of convincing other folks of the same. Well, thank you so much, Barbara, for the call. Uh, Pamela or Marla, you know, who would like to jump on this one, or you both can? So coyotes right now are pretty active. This is mating season for them, and they're around. And we have them here. I see them on my cameras, and I'm like, leave my opossums alone. But basically, um, people just need to make sure, and I know everybody has heard this, that you don't have food out near where your home is, um, that you're not doing anything to attract them. Uh, and for your own safety and your pet's safety is to make sure that, like at night, when we put our dog out, we go and stand with her. Um, because that's when we're worried that maybe a coyote would 
uh, come forward to live peacefully with an animal. You know, a lot of times it's the humans that are causing the problems. They're the ones that are maybe attracting them with food or they're the ones who are chasing them. And so we say, let them live their life uh, unless they're on your property. If they're if they're like near your house or coming up to your porch, then you're going to want to call your animal control officer. Otherwise, leave them alone. They don't want anything to do with you any more than you want anything to do with them. And Pamela, we also heard from one animal shelter, Animal Haven in North Haven, that posted in their Facebook page in July that they were nearly out of food and sinking like the Titanic. And the New Haven Register reported that within a day, they've had 750 packages delivered. Is this something that rings true to you, something that you're seeing, you know, people's outpouring, (laughs) you know, care for the animals? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people want to help wildlife. They can't be rehabbers. I mean, it's a lot of work. Or they don't have the space. And so in Connecticut, we have... Um, we have wonderful, caring people who help. And if I go on my Facebook page and go, I'm out of food, which is all the time, or I'm out of pee pads, which is more of the time, people will go to our Amazon wish list and they'll send us what it is that uh, we're asking for. The other thing that Connecticut has that I bet a lot of listeners don't know about is a wildlife transport system. And, you know, there might be an animal, an opossum in the western part of the state that needs to get to me, but it's a long drive. And so we have this group of volunteers that will take that animal and bring it to the rehabber. And sometimes it's even a relay because it's such a long drive that they'll meet each other. The animals, um, they're not touching the animals. The animals are already in a carrying case, and it's just a matter of driving them to the rehabber that's waiting for them. And Marla, is this something that you're seeing as well, having a lot of people be so generous with, with their time and, and their money to help the animals? Yes, definitely. I mean, we've, we have call to actions. Um, it does cost us over $1,000 a day to stay in operation because we're such a large operation. So um, we're very transparent about that. And, you know, with our volume of 270 um, animals, we have to have a staff. There's no way to care for that amount of animals and the different species that we have without um, staff. So we do have volunteers that are very diehard as well, and they come and help out on the weekends. But most people work during the week, so that's really when our staff is on site. Um, but definitely we've had um, people come together and help us raise funds for large fundraisers. And we have an Amazon wish list as well. And for both of you, your websites are all listed at ctpublic.org slash where we live. But we'd love to know, you know, what can our listeners know more about how to support you? You know, Marla, let's start with you. I, I see that we can actually buy a goat valentine or sponsor a farm animal. Sounds like there's a, a large list that we can we can check on to 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 uh, give our support. Yes, we do have a variety of ways for people to give. Obviously, there's all the regular one-time donations, we try to do fun things like the goat valentine or send a duck a valentine. Um, people actually mail in valentines with a small donation, and then we read them on camera, which is always a really good time. Um, and then we do have animal sponsorships, which are really the bulk of where our 
regular donations come in. It's a monthly commitment, and it really helps us honestly stay in operation is sponsoring an animal. And Pam, what about you? What can listeners do to help support you and your opossums? So we do have a wish list, and then we also um, will ask people for donations on our Facebook page if we have a special project, and then we video the project as it progresses. We have a huge fundraiser just once a year. Ours this year is going to be May 19th, where it's sort of an open house, and people can come and meet the opossums, and we do... Uh, fundraisers at that um, annual open house. So um, that's basically how we get uh, funds. You know, the thing is, people um, probably don't know that wildlife rehabbers is a volunteer job. The state doesn't pay us. The government doesn't pay us. So we really do count on donations, sometimes gift cards to places like Tractor Supply or Walmart uh, or even Amazon helps us so that when we need something, we can get it right away. Can I just say one reminder before I end? Really quick. You got thir- you got a minute here. <laughs> okay. Wildlife are not pets. And people in Connecticut, you really have to um, pay attention to that because in some states, wildlife can be kept as pets, but not in Connecticut. So if you find a injured animal or a baby animal, please contact a rehabber. Contact me. I'll tell you if there's a rehabber in your area. And can you remind our listeners what were the three R's again? The three R's are rescue, rehab, and release. That's the important one. Rescue, rehab, and release. Thank you so much. Again, listeners, you can find more information at ctpublic.org slash where we live. You've been listening to Pamela Lefferts, who's the founder of Ferncroft Wildlife Rescue in Woodstock. Thank you so much, Pam, for being with us today. Thank you. You're also listening to Marla Riley of the Riley Farm Rescue in Canterbury. Thank you so much, Marla, for spending time with us on Where We Live today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.